corporate prayers and individual prayers of lament. That we would be sensitized to the brokenness of the world around us and that we would find words, counseling words, words from the prophets, words to pray back to God about the brokenness in our world. That would be one of our hopes. And even to press into that, that we would have godly men that would study to show themselves approved that they might stand right up here and lead us in corporate prayers of lament. Some of you men this morning, you're not in formal leadership and you think you have nothing to aspire for. I want to speak directly to you for a moment. You need to give yourself to the Word of God to the point that you could be recognized and identified as a man who has studied to show himself approved that he might rightly divide the Word of Truth, that you might be called upon, that you might be called upon to stand here to read a text of Scripture and to be able to offer a corporate prayer, such even as a prayer of lament. You say, well, anybody can get up there and do that. No, you can't. To stand up here and to open God's Word and to read it is a weighty thing. And to lead God's people in prayer is a weighty thing. The exact thing that got God's people into the lament that they're in is they were treating the Word of God flippantly. You're going to see that today. Don't abdicate. It's not too late. It's not too late. It's not too late. We still have culture. We still have... We can, we're free to move about the country. We have weddings and funerals. We still can gather here right now. It's not too late. It's not too late. It could get too late. It's not too late. What a beautiful gathering you are this morning. What if six months, eight months from now, a few more of you were identified to be able to stand up here to read God's Word and to lead us in a prayer, a corporate prayer, and maybe even a prayer of lament. God, I lament the reality of that brokenness in the world, and I wish you'd fix it. Please help us in this area. Wouldn't that be a beautiful thing? It'd be a godly thing. I believe it'd be a scriptural thing. I think that's what Lamentations is in many ways, is a corporate prayer of lament. It's nothing if it isn't a prayer. The title says it's a lament. A lament is a heartfelt cry of sorrow. It is a prayer by which one cries out to God because of the struggles one feels in his or her life. Do you feel struggles in your life? Anger is a secondary emotion. If you peel just beneath it, you'll find struggles. You'll find disappointment. You'll find a sense of inadequacy. You'll find a sense that you've been treasonously mistreated, rejected. Inadequate is a big one. Underneath comes, underneath the anger comes the reality of the struggle. And lament wrestles with the gap between what we know to be true about God and what's actually happening in the world around us. It's where we wrestle with the why questions and the how questions of life. Christian lament gives us a vocabulary to interpret the pain that we feel. I want to, in this series, squelch airbrushed Christianity. Now, the other side to airbrushed Christianity is we're just like a, a heaping batch of emotion all the time, and I'm not calling for that either. Take care of your business, and don't always make it everybody else's business. But I'm really not talking to you if, if you're the person that's kind of already understood the transparent reality of sharing. I want to talk to those of you that have spent your Christian lives being stoic and guarded and undersharing. The covenant people of God do not profit well from your hiddenness, and you don't profit well from hiding yourself. It is so important that we not only get real with God, which is what this text is about, 
but also that we get real with one another. And too often, we kind of have an airbrushed Christianity, a stoicism that is not rooted in biblical theology that comes from God, not at all. It is so very important that we learn to pray prayers of lament because it slowly, in God's grace and providence, pulls us out of ourselves to recognize and say, there's a problem and I can't fix it. There's an issue and I can't solve it. There is a limit to our rugged individualism, and I'm all about individualism in terms of work ethic, individual responsibility here. It's what's really made things great in this country is people taking responsibility, having an idea, and going and getting it. But some of that will fail you in the economy of God within His covenant people because there comes a point to where you can't fix it yourself. And you stare down and you stare down it and you wonder, is anybody else like me in this brokenness? Is there anybody else like me? Or do I just need to find a way to get over it? And the Bible doesn't just carve out space and margin for you to feel that way. It actually urges you to lament together about the brokenness in our world. The title of today's sermon is When God Feels Like an Adversary. Like an adversary. Not that he is, but that he feels like it. And the setting of Lamentations, as I've already said, let me remind you, is just after God's people had been exiled. The Babylonians had conquered them. The southern kingdom had not learned from the failings of the northern kingdom 136 years prior. History repeated itself, and the rebellion of the northern kingdom landed them under God's wrath in 722 B.C. or so, and the rebellion of the southern kingdom now lands Judah under God's wrath. Jerusalem has been pillaged. God's instrument to punish his people is the brutal Babylonians. And we will figure out as we go along and at the end how, what we do with this. We've already alluded to some of it. So let's ask now God to help us understand this tough text. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Dear Heavenly Father, as we look at Lamentations 2, we ask you to help us. Because we are hopelessly lost without your intervention. And we continue to need your intervention because your ways are higher than ours. And we tend to revert back to the sins of the flesh, even in our way of thinking. Help us with what we can know and help us to be comfortable with that which we can't quite know it all about. Help us to give the mysterious things to you, the secret things, to leave it in your hands as they are, but the things that have been revealed, to trumpet them from the highest hill and to live them out to the best of our ability. In Jesus' name, amen. Lamentations chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. Notice in the first verse, it begins and ends with anger. God is angry. Verse 2. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. Quick pause. Destruction. Dishonor. Anger. His people not remembered in the time in which they're needing deliverance from Babylon. Why? How? That's how this chapter begins. How? Verse 3. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. 
He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. Pause. This is like the reverse exodus, isn't it? Our God's a consuming fire, right? What happens when the consuming fire consumes you? Our God guides us with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. What happens when that mighty hand and outstretched arm is not for you? What happens when the swallowing up of the Egyptians during the Exodus is turned on Israel? Now, Israel is no doubt unique. And we need to be careful about making direct applications to the people of God in the Old Testament and the pursuit of a regenerate church membership that we have as a local church in the New Testament parlance of God, how we're living out in this epic. However, the parallels can be made as well. We as God's people, as the church, have New Testament examples of this kind of judgment where God just says, enough, enough. Think of uh, Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. Enough. Think of uh, Revelation 2 and 3 in t- toward the end of your New Testament where the churches are being judged corporately and they're being called to repent because they've, they've gone off into sexual immorality, they have lost their first love, etc. So we see this, this carries freight not just there but here, but this, just to put ourselves in the, in the context 2,500 years ago, This is painful, and it will be for seven decades. The exile is lengthy, and it's just happened, and Jeremiah is lamenting that the power of God turned on his own people. It is as ugly as it seems. It's only going to get uglier. I'll give you three points this morning. In these verses 1 through 9, you're going to see God's power. God's power. In verses 10 through 17, you're going to see man silenced. Silenced. And then in verses 18 through 22, you're going to hear painful prayer from God's people. So God's power, man's silence, and then painful prayer. That's how we want to try to flow through this text, and we will attempt to make application of it at the end of the sermon. So moving on along here, verse 4, He has bent his bow like an enemy. Like an enemy. Not an enemy, but like an enemy. Teenage girls overuse this word, don't they? Like, uh, like, 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 uh, yeah, like, really, like, like, you've ever heard that before. Like, 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 uh, simile, like is a simile, like and as are both similes. They're meant to make comparison. It's not meant to say that, um, you know, this is straight, this stand is straight like a piece of wood. It doesn't mean this is wood, right? And we could go on with that and on with those kinds of like, 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 like. I want you to understand that God is not the adversary of his people, but he feels like an adversary because he is willing to punish his people through the vehicle of their enemies, Babylon. And the Babylonians, this is, there's a reason Revelation talks about Babylon's destruction and uses Babylon as a, a catch-all phrase for all the enemies of the people of God. There's a reason for it. They were vicious with Jerusalem. They starved them out where cannibalism felt like the only option. You're going to hear that. This is what's happening. Verse 4 again. He's bent his bow like an enemy. Shoot an arrow. With his right hand set like a foe. like, And he has killed all who were delightful in our eyes. In the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his fury like fire. 
The Lord has become like an enemy. Look how powerful he is. He's swallowed up Israel. He's swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid in ruins its strongholds. He has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. You see where the book title comes from here, right? Lamentations. There it is, chapter 2, verse 5. Just a quick pause here. I feel like it's too much to take in in just a swift reading. So we're going to pause, go, pause, go, pause, go. But it says, He has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. There are times in life when we suffer and we shouldn't and can't draw a straight line between our suffering and our sin. Many times. I counsel many of you, walk with many of you. When things happen to you, and it's, it's not directly your fault. For your biblical example of that, think of Job in the Bible. All right, Job's allowed to be sifted, but did Job have a straight line between his pain and his sin? Yes or no? No, he did not. There's not a straight line between what Job was doing in the moment and what God allowed to happen to him. And you remember all his bad counselors and this, that, and the other. In Lamentations, the only similarity is the pain and suffering. In Lamentations, there is a straight line being drawn between the sins of the people and their punishment. If that's uncomfortable, I think it's a necessary discomfort. Because God, you need room in your theology, in your philosophy for life, for God's wrath, for God's righteous anger. He's right in his anger. If you don't have room for that, you cannot receive the gospel because the gospel is predicated on an angry God. If he's not angry, there's nothing to be saved from. If his holiness is not important, there's nothing to be made holy. If his righteousness is not right, well, you get the picture. This is why theologians have called God's love as holy and described his holy love as the way that he deals with his people because he's both loving and he's just. His holy love is perhaps never any more on display than in here in Revelation in terms of the biblical text. It's on display many places in the text. But he is, he is angry. and In this case, he's angry with his people. We'll talk about the types of anger and that are most of the anger at the end of this sermon. I, I promise to bring that back together. But here's our title, Lamentations, the book title. They're mourning. There's no need to be precise. And there's no need to be intellectual about this. We can just feel this text. Matter of fact, the poetry in these five chapters are so precise, you don't have to be super intellectual about it. You can just feel the pain. It's kind of written that way. Verse 6, he's laid waste his booth or his dwelling like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath. In his fierce indignation or anger, he has spurned king and priest. Pause after verse 6. Think about this, the way culture has been lost. There's no days off. There's no Sabbath day's rest. There's There's no joyous festivals. There's no weddings. There's no grooms to marry anyway. Many of them have been hauled off or killed off. Women have been pillaged and raped. What is left is absolute destruction. The Lord has let his people have what they wanted, life without him. Whatever God they wanted to worship, it wasn't the one true God. And he said, well, here, let me take my hand off of you. Can you imagine for a second the despair? You probably can't. Many of you in here are God-following people. Sometimes a little more energetic, sometimes a little less, but basically you're God-following people. You believe he puts what we call a hedge of protection around you, don't you? He leads you with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. You believe that God is for you, don't you? What if you had sinned so vociferously, so protractedly, and rejected the true words of God through prophets like Jeremiah for so long? What if you got utterly defeated, but were still living and breathing to look at it? 
and you got utterly defeated, what if you didn't even have a vocabulary for what you were feeling, but you knew that your sin had brought you here? Like not in some uh, you know, psychologically broken way, like I think everything's my fault. Not that, but like literally, I live this way over and over and over. I defy the Spirit of God. He's removed His hedge of protection from me. I, I know it's hard to imagine it, but that need, that's what you need to imagine to put yourself where these people had to be, not just what they felt, but the physical realities of the situation. The internal brokenness had come to external brokenness. And God is angry, and there's no culture. There's, there's no, no more room for know-it-alls. It, the comfortless guides, there's, not, there's nothing else left for that. The pain. But you need to understand that not all pain means abandonment. And not all correction lacks compassion. Sometimes God allows his people to suffer, as Jonas rightly prayed earlier, for their sanctification. He allows people to feel pain because they can come to terms with the fact that they're still feeling with God. It is very difficult to be angry with a God that you don't believe exists. And it's very difficult for God to be angry with you if you don't exist. So at least we don't have a crisis of existence. We exist, and God exists, and what I'm trying to get you to do is to pivot your anger with God for whatever your circumstances are, whatever your pain and unmet expectations and inadequacy is. I'm trying to get you to pivot from your anger with God to imagine possibly, profitably, that God might be TO'd with you. That's what I'm trying to get you to do in this text this morning. Because I think that that's a great way to read this text. Look at verse 7. We're still talking about God's power. The Lord has scorned His altar, disowned His sanctuary. He's delivered into His hands of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor or a shout in the house of the Lord. As on the day of festival, the enemies have come in and desecrated a room like this. They've come in and just done their own thing. And look at, look at, I mean, just when you think it can't get any worse, look at verse 8. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. So the, the rampart, a wall built to protect a city. Uh, th- there's no more defenses. He causes it to languish. And remember, th- he's drawing a straight line between their sin and the consequences for their sin. And Jeremiah is at least being allowed to, I believe, being agreed with by a group of people that are now bordering on repentance because they're realizing, I deserve this. I, I was really flippant with the things of God. Like, I didn't listen to his word. You know, it's the, as they say, the chickens have come home to roost. This is, there's a line between my sin and the consequences for my sin. God gave me time after time after time. He told me, and he told me, and he sent people to tell me, and he told me again. And instead, I gathered around myself people that told me what my itching ears wanted to hear. So that I could go on in my sin with seeming impunity. But God won't be mocked. And, and now here's the good thing about that sense for you. Is that if you realize downstream that your sins can be drawn to a straight line to your consequences. And you feel this, this, this weight, this, 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 this gravity of how your predicament is your fault. If you feel that, I want you to know you're already on the way to great awakening in your heart. Because if you feel responsible for your sin, you've gotten the first part of the Romans road down. The wages of sin is death. 
You've figured out that sin separates you from God and that you've sinned and you've fallen short of the glory of God. Listen, you need to understand what a, what a wonderful weight that that is for you. Wonderful weight. Because a large percentage of the world does not believe that they are to blame for the predicament they've in, that they're in when they've rebelled against God's clear teaching. See, that's one of the things that is lost when a culture loses all gratitude and all sense of order. One of the things that's lost when homes are broken down and there's no God-fearing men to stand up in a home and say, Thus saith the Lord. One of the things is lost is a sense that my sin leads to my consequences. And if you can recover that, regardless of what kind of home life you come from, if you can recover that your sin leads to consequences for your sin, if you can recover that, you're well on your way to accepting the gospel. Now, that's not the same thing as accepting the gospel. You can wallow in that pit and never receive the free grace of God. We're going to get to that. But, the, but you can't get the free grace of God if you don't understand that there's a straight line between your sin and your consequences for your sin. You understand? Now, there's consequences that you reap because of sin universally. If it's not a straight line from your sin... To there, that's Job. So I'm not trying to pound on people that are tender here. That's not, not what I'm trying to do. But this message really isn't about you, and you need to stop making it about you. As if you're a kind of a tender conscience-having person, Lamentations is not about you necessarily. It's about the hard-hearted ones that don't think that their sins are ever going to catch up with them. That's what this is about. And it's about getting out ahead of that to the glory of God. Verse 9. God's power. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He's ruined and broken her bars. Her kings and princes are among the nations. They've been scattered. The law is no more. Lawlessness prevails. Her prophets find no vision from the Lord. Proverbs says, where there is no vision, the people perish. These people are perishing. They're languishing. The Lord had given them what they wanted. Life without His hand, without His law, without His way. And there would come a day when the law would be written on the hearts of the people of God. And Jeremiah prophesied it, but that day had not come yet. And this was a dark day. Verses 1 through 9 tell us about God's power. Now, secondly, verses 10 through 17 tell us about man's silence. If you were to read in the Gospels, occasionally Jesus will be in a debate with the religious thinkers of the lawyers or the scribes of his day, and he'll be talking with them back and forth, and he'll engage them. They'll engage him, talk, quiet, talk, quiet. It's what's known as the rabbi's art of question and answering. And the way that you won in the art of question and answering is when the other person didn't have an effective retort. So like for just one example, if you were to read the Gospel of Matthew chapter 22, it's a lengthy chapter. It goes back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And in the end, Jesus silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the lawyers. They're all quiet. What does that mean in biblical terminology is they got defeated. They were quiet. Now, what's going on in Lamentations that we can bring from that is the silence of the elders means utter defeat. They're defeated. They have nothing else to say. Now, Jeremiah will say some things on behalf of the people, but you need to cue in on the word silence. Look at verse 10, because the people hadn't listened to true preaching, and now Jeremiah is going to pray in the first person for the people. But right before he does that, he articulates the silence of the elders of the daughter of Zion. Verse 10, the elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth to their mourning. Kind of like a funeral scene, right? Matter of fact, many theologians describe lamentations as funerary, not so much in its eulogy, but in its elegy. 
the sadness of a civilization dead. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. Verse 11, now Jeremiah speaks in the first person, my eyes are spent with weeping. My my sight fails because I cry so much. My stomach churns. He's in torment within. My bile is poured out to the ground. My heart's poured out on the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of his people. It says, because infants and babies faint in the street of the city. Verse 12, they cry to their mothers, where's bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of a city, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom, mother's arms. Could there be anything more disheartening than a mother unable to feed her children? The picture that comes to mind was real in 585 B.C. This is what it looked like. Jeremiah is talking about it and bringing voice out of their silence to frame their situation. You know, there's a kind of despair to which you can't even rightly tell people what's going on. Like, you know your pain that you feel, and you can describe pictures, little pieces of your experience, but the big picture of your experience, you need help with it. And God's always known this. He gives us people when we need them to help us understand where we've come from and where we're going and the bigger picture of the painful experiences and the sufferings that we feel. And that's a grace, too. It's, it's not pitiful for you to get help in explaining your situation. And I think that's what Jeremiah is being led of God to do here. He's explaining the situation. Out of the silence, he's explaining what's being seen and trying to bring some vocabulary for it as the first step and many, many steps toward healing. Not, not just healing of their hearts, but also healing of their culture and their civilization, which is going to take a lot, lot longer to heal. Look, look at, at what it says in verse 13. What can I say for you? So what can I compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you? O virgin daughter of Zion, for your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your sins, your iniquity, to restore your fortunes or to ward off your captivity. But these False preachers have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading, verse 14. So he's articulating what the problem has been. They're perhaps finally ready to listen to him after the events of prophecy so many, so long, so far. Verse 15, all who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this a city that was called the perfection of beauty? The joy of all the earth. Psalm 48.2 is where that's listed. And it was kind of a a catch verse for the people of God, for the nation. And what had happened is they're saying, isn't this supposed to be the joy of the earth? Isn't this supposed to be the perfection of beauty? Isn't this supposed to be true, beautiful, and good? No, not now. It's supposed to be, yeah, but it's not now that. And the pastor buyers are quoting it. And some of them are apparently relishing in the pain of God's people. You ever had that happen? You ever felt like the enemies of God are triumphing and celebrating over we puny little Christians in our little churches with our little budgets and our little gatherings? If they've ever felt that way, this is a way to begin to process not only what that feels like, but also how the rest of the story goes. Because our budgets aren't puny, our gatherings aren't puny, our efforts aren't puny. 
But when you feel puny, you can put yourself into the emotions of a text like this and see that God's immediate response to man's condition is not always his long-term provision for his people. You don't have to read past Revelation to see that either. Remember, if you read Revelation chapter 4 through chapter 20, the people of God get ravaged before they get delivered. Before the New Jerusalem comes, I mean, God's people just get tossed to and fro. And the, the, one of the marks of the people is martyrdom. Now, just to say that. Now, but the prophets have spoken falsely. That's part of what's led to the problem is they didn't have preachers tell them the truth. They had a lot of liars, and now they're scattered. Verse 15, all who pass along the way clap their hands at you, scorn and wag their heads. Verse 16, all your enemies rail against you. They hiss. We've swallowed her up. Ah, this is the day we long for. Now we have it. We've lived to see this day. They're defeated. The Lord has done what he purposed. He's carried out his word, which he commanded and decreed long ago. He's thrown them down without pity. He has made the enemies rejoice. His, the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your, of your foes. So he's... He's overthrown you without pity. He has let the enemy gloat over you. He's exalted the horn of your foes. I'm thankful that this is not common to what happens to the people of God. But I'm also thankful that in Lamentations we have an example of what wanton corporate rebellion can lead to over a period of centuries. Because what does that example, what does that remembering do for us? It not only teaches us to lament the brokenness in our world, but it teaches us to repent of our sin, doesn't it? So I just want to ask you this morning, What do you need to repent of? You individually, what do you need to repent of? I ask myself the same question. What do I need to repent of? Not just ethereal sins, but real sins. What's the hidden sin in your heart you need to repent of? What are you doing when nobody's looking? You know it's wrong. You need to repent of it. There's mercy to be found there, but the painful process, it is painful to begin with. And you have to say, this is it. That's it. And I want you to understand the grace on your life that that is. Rather than it accumulates, it accumulates, it accumulates, it accumulates, and the discipline of God has to come down on you hard. Or worse still, which is how this sermon ends in a minute, It accumulates, it accumulates, it accumulates, it accumulates, and you were never blood-bought, never born again, and the punishment doesn't necessarily come in this life. Ha-ha, I got away with it. It comes in eternity because Jesus says to you, like Matthew 7, 22, depart from me, I didn't know you. See, the problem with wanton sin is how do you have any joy in your salvation? How do you know it exists? How do you have assurance of eternal life if you never live for Christ? If to live for Christ, if to live as Christ and to die as gain... What happens if you die never having lived for Christ? Well, when I was a little kid, I went to church with my mom, and I said a prayer. You know, I'm good. What about the other 70 years of your life? Did it mean anything? God's regenerate people bear fruit over time. Perfectly trackable, no. But listen to me. Some of you need to hear this this morning. If you are so dependent on a yesteryear experience that you never take the time to examine the here and now fruit, you probably need to take the time to examine the here and now fruit. Do you live for the Lord? Are there times along the way when the Lord, through texts like this, causes you to stop and say, I'm a sinner and I need to repent of that sin because Jesus died for my sins, including that sin, and I'm not going to make a mockery of the gospel by continuing to sin in that way with with seeming impunity. I'm going to repent of that and walk with Christ. Does that happen to you? And, and, And... I'm telling you, if it would happen, it would verify the experiences that you've had. 
It would serve as God's means along the way to give you assurance of eternal life and joy in your salvation and recommitment to the cause of Christ on your way to eternity. Do you need to repent? What do you need to repent of? Be specific this morning. And then get accountability for it. Talk to other people about it, older, wiser men or women in the church, and get help. Third point, after God's power and our being silenced by his righteousness in our little debates with him, we come to painful prayers. Just unresolved tensions, painful prayers. We'll notice in verse 18, their heart cry to the Lord. They cry to the Lord. They're not blaming him. He's angry at them. They've realized it. They're no longer angry at him. The faithful remnant is saying to the Lord, not at the Lord, not about the Lord. He's, they're talking to the Lord, and they're saying to the Lord the things that they feel that they need to say, and they're being led to say this corporately by the prophet Jeremiah now. O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the, of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hand to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. Look, Lord, O Lord, see, consider, look and see. With whom have you dealt like this? Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary, the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets lie the young and old together? My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You've killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtered without pity. He's allowed the Babylonians to do this to the people. Verse 22, you summon as if, like or as, like as if, to a festival day. You summoned my terrors on every side. Contrary to a day of festivals, a day of terror, a reign of terror. And on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Aren't you glad when God deals with you before there's some point that he deals with you? Would you let this morning be the day he deals with you? Let August 9th, 2020 be the day where the Lord dealt with you? Would you stop sinning with seeming like there wouldn't be any punishment and you repented because you are his? Not to earn being his, but because you are his? To avoid further discipline down the road that gets worse and worse and worse? And to have great assurance that you won't face utter discipline on the day of the Lord? You see, this is grace to be sinners in the hands of an angry God instead of putting God on trial as if he's in the hands of angry sinners. On the anger of the Lord, it says at the end of verse 22, those whom I held and raised, my enemy destroyed. Friends, I want to say this is lament. It's lamenting the utter destruction of Israel and of Judah, of Jerusalem. Only when you encounter a God powerful enough to destroy you will you find him powerful enough to save you. By way of takeaway, hear me again. Only when you encounter a God powerful enough to destroy you will you find him powerful enough to save you. This lament isn't just meant to be thought about. It's meant to be felt. Because this God that's powerful enough to destroy you can be found powerful enough to save you. Can lead you to prayers of lament and prayers to repent. Women, thank God you can feed your kids this week. Men, thank God you can work if you can work. And if necessary, that you can fight for what's right. 
Children, thank God you have culture, the basic ability to marry and bury and think. Be grateful. Don't be ungrateful. It's a sign of the heathen. Elderly, pass along the authority. Hold on loosely to it. Mentor, have patience. Don't hoard it. Invest in others spiritually. Ask God to help the sinner to hold longer. We need mercy when times of wrath are deserved. We need gratitude for the basics of life. It isn't guaranteed. Can we thank God that we're not sitting in an ash heap right now? Singles that want to be married and marrieds that wish they'd stayed single and widows who miss companionship. Your loneliness is real, but I want you to know it's temporary. John Henley wrote a little book. It covers green and white. We have it out there at the bookstall. He said this at the very end of it. He said, our suffering is terrible, but our suffering will not end in a funeral. It will end in a wedding. Our suffering's terrible. Your suffering's terrible. I'm not marginalizing it, but I want you to know it's not the end. It will not end in a funeral. Your suffering will end in a wedding. That's what the redeemed of the Lord can say. Because God's power to destroy sinners has been leveraged to redeem sinners and to give them the gift of eternal life. But there's only one way. There's only one way. And that's through the personal work of Jesus Christ. There is no other way. Our joy, our assurance and witness interlocks when we agree with God about what sin is, what salvation is. When we listen to God by His Word, we understand He's right to be angry at sinners. His holiness and reputation, when we realize it will be vindicated on the last day because of who God is, and He is the God that is. It's not a figment of our imagination. He's been at war with those who sinned since Eden fell from grace. But He's poured out His anger on His Son. That's what the cross was about. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because that was God's means to give you salvation. It's not that wrath was swept under the rug, or that God's integrity didn't matter. The way he reckoned, the satanic wrecking ball in this world that is sin, is he heaped it on his son. And the only response from somebody that has realized that is the heaping of wrath on his son. The only response from somebody like you that's realized that is worship. It's, it's repentance. It's joy. It's He did that for me. So I could avoid lamentations in hell forever. That's what the end of the Bible says about us. So what God has done in His Son for you is just amazing. He's given you a new heart if you'll receive it. And that gives you the strength you need to stare down your rebellious ways and surrender those ways to an all-loving and all-just God because He's just that good. When you're free-falling, that's when God grabs you and makes you the most aware of His presence and His hope for your life. So remember, today, if you understand God's power to punish, you can receive God's power to save. That's the path. If God's still on trial with you, you can't be saved because He's not God. He's not holy. He's not right in His, in his wrath. But today... If you'll confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. The wages for your sin is death, but the gift of God, the free gift that you can't earn, is eternal life through Jesus Christ, who took on all that right wrath for you. That's what it means to be a believer. And that is the ultimate message of Lamentations, way, way down the road. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I ask you to help your people 
to identify with your provision for their salvation. Help your people to realize freshly and newly today that you love them even when you stand against them in their sin and that your calling them to repent is actually your mercy. And I pray, Lord, that you would, in times when we as a corporate people have acted so unfaithfully for so long where we deserve wrath, I pray that you would remember mercy and that you would grant us more time to have great awakening in, in our hearts and as a people. We need to be awakened. It will come because you are merciful to us and call us to our knees before our cities become an ash heap. I ask for your help now in our responses as we sing in Jesus' name. Amen.